Yes. We are the hungry ones. Your torments call us like dogs in the night. And we do feed. And feed well. To stuff yourselves on other people's nightmares. And butter our plain bread with delicious pain. So, you do understand a little. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Take Me to Your Reader, discussing adapted science fiction at its best and worst. I'm Seth. I'm Jim Nightshade. (laughs) And I'm Colin. And uh, for October 2022, Halloween, uh, we've been talking about doing this title for a while, and finally Mm -hmm. we're getting around to doing Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury, which was published in sometime. 1962. There we go, 1962. And uh, as always, it's where, I think, contractually obligated anytime we talk about Ray Bradbury, (laughs) we bring in our friend... Dr. Phil Nichols. Hi, Phil. Hello. <laughs> it's always great to have you. Indeed. Well, thank you. It's good to be here when, to see you break the format once again, because it's not science fiction. What no. are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's more SFF that, that, uh, that we really cover, and fantasy is okay. So, uh, let's see. Since I think the last time we had you on was for the Fahrenheit 451 HBO one with the Rama. pigeon. <laughs> No, Rama. Oh, it was Rama. That's right. I always forget Rama-cast. that. Yeah. Um, I, can't, I feel like... A while back, somebody asked, like, how many times we've had Phil on, and I forgot about that one. So, yeah. um, anything <laughs> yeah, new too. with you? At any rate, anything new with you uh, since the last time we spoke with you? Uh, anything new? Not really. No, life trundles on. Um, I, I've just released a, a new podcast episode for October uh, in my Bradbury 100 series, and I'm, I've just finished making one which is a bit weird compared to the normal ones. Ooh. And I'm going to release that on the 22nd of October. Any hints yeah. about about what it is? Well, it's a true life story rather than something to do with Bradbury's fiction. That's right. I, I saw you post about that on social media. Uh, yeah, reveals the, the the well reveals the truth behind some incident in Bradbury's life. But uh, well, it does and it doesn't. Okay, but you'll have to listen to find out. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, so, for the guys here, any previous history with something we'll get this way comes the book or movie? Just the song. From Harry oh, Potter. From Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, three? Harry Potter? Uh, yep. Was it? Uh, yeah. I actually watched it too, just so I could hear the song. Okay. <laughs> I think I actually watched this in the early 80s. On KPTV? Might have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although that probably would have been KATU, the ABC channel. Okay. Uh, uh, nothing for me. I, I had, had no previous experience with this other than I knew it was a novel, um, but it was, you know, it sounded like mm-hmm. a creepy novel. And so. That was never something I was going to read. <laughs> um, now, Phil, I'm sure you have extensive history with something wicked this way comes. But do you, any, anything previous to your kind of academic life? Oh, yeah. This uh, was probably the first Bradbury book that I didn't like when I read it, when I first read it. Interesting. This is going back oh. d- decades now. Um, I, simply the first page of it is just, what, what are you on about? <laughs> my, my initial attitude to it. Um, and it took me a while to to get over the the sort of the the language, the style that he's using. It's laid on very thick. The Bradbury style is laid on thicker on the first page of this book than any other book. I would agree. And for right. me, that was yeah. a barrier. Yeah, <laughs> um, it doesn't really let up. Um, no, no, no. I mean, we've talked in the past about Bradbury and the Americana kind of thing, which is interesting given one of the adaptations that we might uh, refer to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the idea of a, I, and I guess, like, in, for anybody who hasn't read it, um, Phil, would you mind just giving a, a brief, you know, what the book is about? Sure. 
Uh, we're set in, I think, the 1930s in a small American town in the Midwest, and a carnival comes to town, and it gets two two small boys, are sort of 12 years old-ish, uh, gets them all excited. They sneak out to see the carnival, and it turns out the carnival is, uh, spoiler, evil. And uh, <laughs> it's about the battle of good versus evil in trying to ward off this, um, this menace mm. that has descended on the town. That's the basic gist of it. Yeah, that sounds good. You got something, Colin? I was putting together my notes yesterday and today, mm-hmm. and I was thinking about the influences of this book on other books. Yes. And I had a whole list of them, and mm-hmm. as I sat to write them down, I lost one. Mm. And I just, just got it just back. Got it back. <laughs> okay. uh, do, do you want to reveal to us your, your list? Yeah, so as I was reading this book, I kept on recognizing things from other books that were written after this. Mm. So in Cornelia Funke's book, The Thief Lord, there is a carousel that, a- that de-ages people. Interesting. And in uh, It by Stephen King, there's this concept of, of evil that periodically revisits and feeds on I'm the fear. people of a town. Yeah, And in... The Giver, and it's not the, the book The Giver, it's in one of the sequels. There's this idea of someone who comes to visit the town to give you everything that you want mm. at a horrible price. Interesting. Well, that's kind of a classic trope in itself, right? Is the, sure. Like Mephisto kind of thing. Where, eh, you can have right, all right. of this for the price. Right. Yeah, if you <laughs> not Vincent Price, but the price. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so this is first time read for all of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. And Colin, it sounded like you had had some similar experience to what Phil was referring to. There was a point in the book, I was about two thirds of the way through, I realized <laughs> I had gone from reading to skimming. Mm. And so I slowed down, went back a couple of chapters, picked it back up. And was like, no, I really want to read this because I enjoy his prose so much, but this is the most, you know, Bradbury, I think right. of all the prose that I've read. <laughs> yeah. It's a little florid in places. Um, yeah. A, a, a bit prolix, I think, I suppose, um, kind of wordy, but it very much is in that, that Bra- Bradbury Americana. What, how great is it to be a boy in America at a particular time? Right? Oh yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's very much in a lot of his, it's in the Halloween tree. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, you know, that first chapter about in, in this book talking about how great it is, you know, to be in October. Cause you know, the beginning of school is past. Now you're kind of into that routine and Halloween is coming up. And so it's a great time. You know, the, the, the leaves are starting to fall. Um, you know, pumpkin right. spice lattes are back. Uh, wait, wait, no, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's not it. Um, but, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it it very much is a very kind of nostalgic thing. And like it, it draws me into it and makes me think, what would it have been like to have been a boy, you know, 40 years earlier than when I was a boy um, or almost 50 years, really? And there's there's a few things in here that just strongly reminded me of my childhood. Um, and so that that's I, I did enjoy the book, I guess, initial reactions. And then I want to talk to Phil about when he came around on it. You're hoping that he came around on it. I'm, I'm hoping, yes. <laughs> but um, yeah, Colin and James, why don't you go first, Colin? I enjoyed the book. There are a couple of scenes that I really, really don't care for, mm. but they're probably completely in line with what life was like back then. Uh, one of which was, you know, the voyeurism. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, in fact, at one point while we were playing disc golf, you asked me if, if the theater was an actual theater or a house. And I went back and I double checked it. Uh-huh. They're in an apple tree looking in somebody's windows. Okay. And they call it the theater because what those people do is on show. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking, yeah. is this a triple X theater somewhere in the town? <laughs> it's a theater for them. <laughs> yeah. In the 30s. Yeah. Go figure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the, the other one I think is just more personal. And that's because um, we're, we're going spoilers, right? Yeah. Definitely. Toward the end of the book. Jim is hurt and he needs to be healed. And 
Will's dad is convinced that the way to heal him is to make his son laugh and not grieve because the carnival will feed on that. So he he hits him once (laughs) in order to kind of shock him out of his grief. Yeah. Then he hits him like four or five other times. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, just it it rocked my head back because my head just rocked back. You all are listening to a podcast. You can't see that. I'm like, (laughs) yeah, I mean, yeah, you might hit somebody, maybe a distraught kid, maybe once to shock them out of what they're doing. Yeah. Every time after that, that's abuse. Mm. I feel like there's a trope in earlier fiction of slapping the hysterical person, and and normally it's a woman. Um, yeah, right. But yeah, that's that's something you don't see so much in in fiction these days. Yeah, I don't think it works. Yeah, there's the famous scene in I think I think the first airplane movie where this, this lady is losing it and people are forming a line to come up and slap her across the face. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> but that's played for comedy, right? It's it's lampooning the the trope. Yeah. Right. Um, what about you, James? Um, I agree with Colin on the on the slapping part. I, I found that off putting too. I'm like, okay, fine. Jesus, how many things are you gonna smack yeah. this kid? <laughs> um, but uh, let's see. I do agree with Colin and Phil that the book started for me. Yeah, the 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 prose started off a little slow, I suppose. Um, but I enjoy Bradbury's prose because it's very like illustrative. Yes, I, I like the way that his writing kind of like sucks you in. It's very immersive for me. So I kind of, I liked it despite it being a little sloggy in some places, but mm-hmm. it, it got along and probably about halfway through the book, I was in the same position as Colin where I found myself skimming to make progress and like, okay, I gotta slow down or take a break. <laughs> Cause as much as I like it, I need to take a break from time to time. <laughs> yeah. I, I ended up, um, because we had to reschedule because of some travel that came up suddenly though it wasn't necessary but it was it was to to be with my son so i don't really apologize for it um (laughs) and how topical right i mean this book is it's not only about how great it is to be a a boy in this time but how great it is to have a a best friend who's a boy your age who lives next door Mm -hmm. and to have a dad yeah i mean yeah yeah and so I ended up thinking, well, okay, I guess I guess we're not going to be able to watch the movie together. So we're all going to have to watch it separately. And I hadn't finished the book yet. And, and I thought, okay, I, I can finish the book on the airplane. But uh, so I ended up watching the movie first. And so when you want, if you watch the movie first, then the book seems much more expansive, right? It, like the the dialogues are longer. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more to the book than, yeah. the, than there was in the movie. Yeah. And, yeah. and even things like the the discussion in the library is much much more extended. In, in the book than in the movie. Uh, the movie condenses that quite considerably. So, mm-hmm. but, but I did enjoy the book. I, I thought it was a, a good read. Um, so, Phil, you mentioned that, uh, sorry, we, we've silenced you for a while, but um, <laughs> you, you said that when you first read it, you didn't like it. Did you eventually come around on it? Yes. I, I, I still think it's my least favorite of the sort of classic Bradbury books, but um, I, I at least now do see that it is a classic uh, I, I do understand it. I've, I mean, I, my first reading of it, I was a science fiction fan and I was devouring the science fiction stuff. Mm. But I'd also read The October Country, which is his weird tales, which are fantastic. Uh, and then I came to this one and it, it just seemed like a very different writer. It mm. seemed like a writer who was very self-conscious. But once I'd read more of Bradbury and I came back to it, I just realized that this that's his style and it fits in with the developing pattern. So if you're interested in his career and its development, as I was as a reader, uh, it it makes perfect sense for it to be the way that it is. And now I look at it and I see it as really being a very clever piece of construction 
in terms of the symbolism, the way the characters are designed to complement each other. And we'll probably get into that more when we talk about the, the film as well. Yeah. Um, but yes, I, I, I now quite admire the book, even though it's my least favourite of his classic works. Okay. One of the things that I, that I kind of pulled out of this, I was, I, was, I was trying to think, what is this book about, really? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's something in there to the yearning to grow up, um, especially for Jim. Yeah. But there's also the where Will's father is much older than other people's fathers, it seems like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he is kind of yearning for younger days. And other people in the town are yearning for younger days. And so when the carnival comes to town, and all of a sudden one of them smells licorice and cotton candy, um, or, sorry, candy floss. Um, <laughs> <laughs> floating um, upon the air. <laughs> yes. And... And and one of the one of the men in town starts tearing up, right? And and somebody's like, "What what are you crying?" And and it's kind of like a, there's no crying in baseball thing, or you know, what what are you a wimp, right, you know? Right. Um, and and he says, "Yes, I'm crying. Why? Because I remember a long time ago that boys ate that stuff. Why haven't I stopped to think and smell the last thirty years?" And so there's there's very much that yearning for your lost youth kind of thing, um, which which is interesting. You know, I'm I'm, I'm turning fifty this year, and so <laughs> so that that hits a little bit. <laughs> That particular thing reminds me, like when when they said smelling licorice and cotton candy, uh, candy floss, candy floss. Sorry, um, <laughs> thank you. We used to, when we used to <laughs> when we used to go to the mall uh, when we'd go go shopping. There was this one place shopping in, center. Shopping center. Sorry, <laughs> it was technically it said the Sears Mall right on the outside. So, um, and uh, in the bottom floor of Sears, there was this gigantic candy counter. And the whole place smelled like butter and popcorn and taffy oh, wow. and sugar and sugar. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and just, it, you, you just became ravenous when you were a kid. You're like, can, can we get some Swedish fish? Mom, can we just get like a, just a quarter pound of Swedish fish um, <laughs> or, or, you know, something else. And that's, that's what that reminds me of. I think if I smelled that right now, it would take me right back there. And I could smell it while I was reading the book. Wow. So, yeah. And you didn't even read an actual book. That was your phone. It wasn't my phone. It was. It was. It was a nook. <laughs> it was but, okay. Yeah. But what's interesting is that it's it's a nostalgia, but your nostalgia is not exactly the same as yes. Bradbury's nostalgia because your nostalgia is for a different era, and yet we can still recognise that. And yes. it's a bit like when we read a, a Victorian novel. Uh, they're talking about things that we haven't directly experienced, but the the human meaning of you know different feelings and different thoughts are the same even though we're living in a different era. And mm. I think that's what the, what succeeds really well in the book, is that it, it triggers every reader's nostalgia, even though your nostalgia is different to his. Yeah. I, I think there's a, a, an ongoing discussion about morality as well. Sure. You know, at, at one point, Will asks his dad, you know, am I good? Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the library narrative that gets lost in the movie. Mm. But that's, that's actually mm. some of my mm-hmm. favorite content in the book. It's a reminder that... Uh, the things that we we cherish and hold dear are a few decisions away from being lost at any time. Hmm. Was there anything you're nostalgic for that it that it brought up? Maybe my Atari. <laughs> <laughs> you're thinking of Ready Player One, I think. Right. <laughs> no, I was thinking one of the points I liked that they brought up was if you know if Jim was fast forwarded ten years or whatever. It's ten years that he didn't really experience, though. So he still yeah. has, you know, the teenager or twelve-year-old brain in the body of a twenty-year-old or something like that. Yeah, and I'm not sure that's worth doing. Yeah, <laughs> it, it reminds me of the uh, Next Generation episode 
when Riker is tempted to become part of the queue. And oh, right. he, he ages Wesley up right. suddenly. And, and Wesley's like, I, I want to get there on my own. Yeah. Um, which yeah. was a very mature thing to think for an annoying kid. Yeah. Well, in the science fiction <laughs> comedy with Adam Sandler, I think it's Click. Right, where he stops experiencing things um, because, because he, anything he fast forwards, then when it comes to that, it always fast forwards. Yeah. Um, so he stops experiencing things. Experiencing things. The, the dad, it refers to him as a janitor. So is he the janitor of the library? I think so. Okay. Yeah. In the I was, book, yeah. I was trying to think, did libraries used to be open later than they are now? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> because it seemed like the dad was always at the library, you know, after bedtime. Right, late at night. Well, maybe clean late at night. But yeah, if he's a late night cleaner, yeah. then that, that yeah. would make sense. Yeah, the library would be closed so he could clean without people making new messes or without being interrupted or anything. Right. Or without, you know, bothering people using the books. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. At first, I I don't, I can't remember how early on he was described as a janitor, but I, I was picturing him as a librarian. And that may be because I had watched the movie. Yeah. yeah. So. I don't think it's clear in the movie what he actually does. Yeah. He's he's still he's the personification of the library, yeah. But I, I I don't think we know what his actual job is. I'm, I may be wrong, but uh, yeah, I don't think so. The traveling lightning rod guy was was interesting, <laughs> and and <laughs> the movie actually makes a little more of him than than the book does, um, other than he's turned into a carnival freak. Well, um, both more and less. Yeah, yeah, in, in a way. Right. Um, I I did want to ask. Um, you know, in my mind. The traveling carnivals and that kind of stuff is a very Americana thing. But I presume this happens everywhere. Is this something that you remember from your childhood, Phil? Yes. We, yeah. It's, it's a thing here as well. I mean, we don't call them carnivals, actually. We, we use the word carnival to mean uh, like the, the Macy's Parade, the Fifth Avenue Parade they have in New York, where okay. you know, a whole load of floats go past. That, mm-hmm. to, uh, that to British people is a carnival. What Bradbury is calling a carnival is what we would call a fairground. Okay, um, but we do have the same thing, and they they set up mostly around public holiday times. They'll turn up in various places, and people mm-hmm. go along when the kids are off school. Basically, uh, go along, go on the rides. Okay, and then there are rides a few that shows. are sort of permanent. Yeah, and there are a few that are sort of in permanent position. Okay, uh, they tend to be in seaside locations. Okay, yeah, I mean, I th- I think in the U.S. right, oh, right. a fair is another. Uh, I feel like. A carnival is a subset of a fair um, because there's at American fairs. It seems like there's always like the livestock part of it too, right? Um, when the 4-H <laughs> club comes out to show off their prize sheep and yeah, the um, county chickens, fair, the county the ice fair. cream, exactly, the dairy ice cream. <laughs> yes, yes, and and lots of and fried everything, right? Fried everything, yes. <laughs> right? Fried candy bars, fried Oreos, hot dogs on a stick. Yeah, and a carnival would be a, a traveling thing which brings us exhibits from place to place to place. There are right. mm-hmm. animals and performers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an entertainment rather than a diversion. One of the Oscar nominees last year uh, was Nightmare Alley, which is set at a at a carnival. Yes, um, it was fantastic. Actually, yes. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, and that's one of Bradbury's influences for this. I mean, the, the, I haven't seen that version of Nightmare Alley, but I've read the novel that it's based on, yeah. and I've seen the original film from the fifties. And in there, there is a I think she's called Miss Electra. Something. Yes, she's she sort of runs the elec- electrical show where people are given shocks and mm-hmm. so on. And there's the similar thing in Something Wicked, right, Mister um, Electrical. So, yeah. So Bradbury. I mean, whether Bradbury was influenced by the film to put that in, I think he was actually influenced by his own memory. But clearly, it was a thing that carnivals of the 30s and 
thereabouts had these electrical shows as one of the many sideshows. I guess we we can, uh, I, I, since I read it on the plane, I didn't take a whole bunch of notes on the book. I took more notes for the movies. Um, but so anything anything else you guys want to talk about uh, from from the book? I did write down one thing where Mrs. Foley, the teacher, gets kind of sucked into the mirror maze. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they rescue her. And I thought it was interesting the way Bradbury wrote when she comes out, she said, I'd of drowned, not, not I'd, you know, apostrophe V-E, it has of in there, which is a lot, people say should of, right? And they write it mm-hmm. should of instead yes. of should have. Should have, yeah. Um, and it, it's a common mistake on social media these days. I just thought it was funny <laughs> that then Bradbury used the same thing. I think it's just like a, a, the local dialect, but I'm not sure. Well, yeah, I was thinking he he, yeah. he wrote what they would have actually said, not necessarily writing it proper. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's deliberate. <laughs> Which reminds me of reading Huck Finn. Oh, that's so difficult. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the the dialect. Yeah, yeah. Brutal. <laughs> it's really hard to read aloud. I read it to Ethan. Yeah, and that's that's very challenging. If you had just written the words, yeah. I could have done accents, mm-hmm. but but putting it in the dialect <laughs> made it much much harder to read. Right. Yeah. So. So yeah, any any other comments on on the book? I I want to talk to Phil about the the development of the book because that's a it's an interesting topic. But Ooh, if you guys okay. have anything else you want to talk about about the book, no, I mean, we, we could talk yeah. about the the library discussion. Or I mean, it's it's relevant to to talk about the fact that at some point Mister Halliday finds newspaper clippings and realizes that these people have been coming periodically, going back time immemorial, mm-hmm. right? And and the, I think he calls them right. the Autumn People. Yeah, the Autumn People. Um, yeah, which is a great name. It's it's very <laughs> it's very evocative uh, of something creepy to me. Um, yeah, they come around every so often that people forget that yeah. they were there. Or, and like you were talking yeah. about, you're know, like like the Pennywise and Derry, mm-hmm. right? At various times, a cycle of evil. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And in Stephen mm-hmm. King's sequel to The Shining, The Shining, Doctor Sleep. Mm. I haven't I haven't read that one or. The Shining. I did watch the movie a couple of years ago, but I've never, I've never read it. I haven't read much King. I've got you covered. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, let's, let, um, Phil. You know, this is we, we have you here for your Bradbury expert, expertise, and I know that he didn't necessarily set out to write the novel. Something that this way comes. No, no not at all. He's. It, shall I take you right back to the very beginning? Yes, of it? please. It's. Um, it, it all starts really with a short, a short story called uh, The Black Ferris, which he published in 1948, probably wrote it a couple of years earlier than that. And that just has a couple of boys visiting a carnival and uh, seeing a Ferris wheel that goes backwards and de-ages people. Oh. Uh, so it's that, it's, it's essentially, it's that episode of the novel, but in the form of a short story. And the two, the two boys in that are a bit like Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer. They're, they're not <laughs> not identical, but mm. it's got that same kind of feel to it. Um, and there's a little bit of humour in the story, and it's basically it's a, a weird tale, um, which ends with the the guy being de-aged. Uh, no, sorry, aged so much that he, when the Ferris wheel stops, he's a skeleton. So mm. it's that kind of uh, weird tale twist. Yeah, and, like and Mr. That's where the story Wait, Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of thing. <laughs> or, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Last Crusade. Yeah. yeah. So that was in 48. And then in the 50s, he writes a screenplay, developing that into a longer piece, which he calls The Dark Carnival. And he gives that to Gene Kelly, um, who is best known for things like Singing in the Rain. Mm -hmm. 
And people would say, well, why on earth would Gene Kelly be interested in that? But Gene Kelly had also done some other things. I can't remember the name of the film, but there is a film which has a kind of a, a circus sequence within it. Um, it's one of Kelly's more experimental films. So Bradbury felt that there was somebody who was on a similar wavelength to him. So he gives it to Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly can't get any money to make the film, so it's never made. So then Bradbury starts turning it into a book because why waste all that work? Um, so that's what he does. And then in 62, it comes out as the novel that we now know. And then 20 years later, somebody makes a film of it. And you, and you think, well, why didn't you do that back in the 50s, you fools? <laughs> and, uh, that's, <laughs> that's how it goes. But it, after all that development, it can't help but get better because Bradbury is a, a really good rewriter of his material. He'll polish and polish and polish until every every facet is as shiny and sparkly as it can be. So the the novel, I think that's why the novel feels like the style is laid on so thick because he's rewritten it so many times before oh, wow. he gets to that form of it. Um, that, it, you know, it's, it, it's gone, I think it's probably gone a step too far in, it, in terms <laughs> of its polish. So did he rewrite it in that he like released different editions of it or just re-read it so many times before initial release i guess yeah that's right for, okay. for his own development of got the it, work right, um, right. so th there only exists the one version of it okay, in the, okay. the public so sphere. not quite like um fahrenheit 451 where there's the there's that whole collection of stories called a pleasure to burn that kind of shows the development right including through uh, the the fireman right, right. Show, uh, story um and it yes. kind of finally pupates into the the full novel uh, yeah. the uh yeah the musical that you were talking about is Invitation to the Dance. That's the one. Where there's a carnival the sequence yeah. in it. The, my, uh, my version, yeah. my ebook of Something Look at This Way Comes has an afterword from Ray Bradbury called Carnivals Near and Far, mm -hmm. um, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. So that's where he mentions that. So yeah, he, he developed it into, it started kind of a short story into a screenplay and then back into the novel. And then we have the further adaptation, of course, into the film. Um, so anything else we want to talk about about the novel before we start moving on to film? We we can briefly talk about the 1972 film and get it done and then move on to the 1983 <laughs> so that, film. That's what I wanted to talk to, to <laughs> Phil about. Oh, yes. Because <laughs> can, we, can, can we come to that? Can we just do a little bit on the novel first? Yes, uh, sure. The, the one thing I, I would, I would desperately want to, draw to people's attention in the novel is the construction of the characters the fact that you've got mm -hmm. the two boys one who is born i think it's a, is it a minute before midnight minute, and the right. other is born a minute after, after yeah, yeah. so it, you know all of this is highly artificial but essentially we've got two characters a kind of a yin and yang character mm -hmm. a kind of a one who is drawn towards the dark side and mm -hmm. one who is sweetness and light right one who's born one, who one who has black e hair right yeah. Yeah. yeah one who is eager to grow up and the other one who'd be quite happy staying a child probably um and yet they're the best of friends and so the whole thing is the tension between the two characters and i think that works really well mm -hmm. it's artificially um it's symbolism in a sort of artificial way but yeah i i think what the dis the choices he's made in designing those characters are fine mm -hmm. and then the the father as you say with his regrets um which i think are probably more laid on more thickly in the film than in the book mm -hmm. the father with his regrets is also a, a reflection of those two characters but then you've also got the the boy drawn to the dark side 
doesn't have a father, doesn't right. have a father figure in his life, just has a mother. And on Will's side, I think he has a father and a mother, but we, we don't really see the mother very much. So um, there's these, all these kinds of balances and imbalances between the two characters, which mm -hmm. I think are, are nicely done. And that does carry over to the film. So yeah. that's a, a, a sort of a strength of the novel, I think, which, which survives adaptation. Yeah. I, growing up, my birthday was the day after the cutoff for school. Oh. And so I, I had a friend uh, who, you know, we, we hung out quite a bit. He was a day older than me, and he was a grade ahead. And he just, oh. just rubbed it in my face constantly. <laughs> and, and so I can understand the, the, the perspective from Jim of, man, what can I do? Can, could I be older? I'd like to be older, you know. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so I can, I can definitely understand that kind of chafing. Because I was bigger than him, <laughs> and, and, but he was a grade ahead of me, and that made him superior. So That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Mike Little. Really, Mike Little. Yep, yep. <laughs> and he was a nice kid, but he would never fail to be like, "Well, I'm older than you." <laughs> yeah, I, that, that's an interesting, um, you know, discussion about the the differences between the kids because they're the same age, and so I mean, essentially the same age, and so you'd think that they would have very similar wants and desires, um, but but the fact of the different families, uh, family situation, um, really does make that kind of different um you know the father is older and so he he kind of regrets that he doesn't interact with his son the way he thinks a father should interact with his son you know i need to play baseball right. with him i need to yeah. do, do these things and you know as a father who played baseball with his son and i played baseball with my dad i, I can you know i can very much feel that if i hadn't been able to do that um that would have been something to regret of course when you when you say baseball, you should translate that to cricket for me. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> rounders. How about rounders? <laughs> yeah, that'll do. You, you can just say football because that will mean lots of things to other yes. people. And yes, yep. So yeah, let's. I wasn't sure be, with the 1972 movie. What happened was I watched the first movie, and then I went to Letterbox to log it. And there were two entries. There was one from 1983 and one from 1972. And so I clicked through to the 1972 one, and there was a link in there to Rare Film, uh, which is where we found one of the, I think, the German um, adaptation that we did recently uh, for Millionenspiel. Right. Um, and, and I found it, and I, it looks, it's, you know, 70, 71, 72 minutes long. Um, and, and I thought, well, okay, I guess at some point if I have some downtime, I'll check this out. So I sat at a coffee shop in Austin, Texas and, and watched it while my son was in class. <laughs> um, but I sent a link to the guys and I said, Hey, how comprehensive are we going to be? Uh, because here I was assuming we were doing the 1983 movie and Colin said, how did you find that? It's not even listed in, in Wikipedia. So is it listed in Wikipedia now? No. Okay. Before this episode comes out, maybe it'll be listed in Wikipedia. Not by me. <laughs> You're our, our resident Wikipedia ex er, editor. Although I I do it too, yeah. I may, I'll, yeah, let's talk more about it and see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So oh <laughs> I mean, Phil, as as a you know acknowledged Bradbury media expert, you you must have known about the 1972 film. Well, if you're talking about the one that I know of, yes. Is is this one that is a very scratchy 16 millimeter film, really acted by school kids? Yes. Yes. British. And maybe they're teachers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, a few of those. Yes, I um, I do know that film. <laughs> it was made by a school, not 
and when I say school, I don't mean a university or a college. It's kind of, you know, like a high school. Okay. Um, just as a, a school project, it's not an official film. Um, it's not for commercial release. It shouldn't really be out there. I've actually got what I think or I thought was the only print of the film because a friend of mine, David Weeks, who is actually in the film, um, he was I think he was a teacher when the film was made. Hmm. Uh, he loaned me the film so that I could get it transferred to video. And then, lo and behold, a couple of years later, it suddenly appears online. I yeah. didn't put it there. I don't know who did, but I, I can only assume that um, David or somebody else shared the file that I sent them when I got it transferred onto video, uh, shared the file with the people who made the film originally, and maybe one of them uploaded it somewhere. I don't know. So, yes, I've seen the film, okay. but anyone who hasn't seen it, don't get too excited. It's, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like a home movie, basically. Yeah. Yeah, the... Uh, Roger that. The, the audio is really tough um, because there's a lot. Yeah. A lot of it was just shot outdoors uh, without you know, with mics that didn't have the nice thing on them to avoid the uh, the wind sounds. Yeah. And so there's a lot of blowouts uh, on the, on the microphone. You know, no pop filters of any kind. Um, yeah. yeah. And and then there's a few places where the ob- audio is obviously dubbed and the lips don't match. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> brutal. It, I, I there. I remember reading uh, from a movie critic saying. Uh, the the quote was, with a film feature film adaptation of a novel, the best that you can hope for is a skillful abridgment, mm-hmm. because you're moving from a longer form to a shorter form, and that's we've talked about the hundred page kind of limit to to get into a film and be reasonably close to it without having to cut a lot of stuff. Um, this film is definitely an abridgment. Um, I'm not sure I'd say skillful, although you know essentially th- there's not much work that goes into writing the screenplay other than taking the dialogue and dropping it in um, because the, the dialogue is straight out of the, the novel. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which if you're doing it on a budget like that makes complete sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it is interesting though, that it's set in the UK and, and uh, so you, you can kind of try to transfer that Americana thing to mm. uh, where, where was it? It was uh, <laughs> the Blackfen branch library. Um, where is that set in, in England? It's just somewhere in London, I think. Is it? Okay. Yeah, I liked how you know it talks about the in the book in the in the the, the eighty three movie, the boys had adjacent houses. Mm. Well, in the in this British adaptation, the adjacent houses they share a wall. Yes, <laughs> so right. they could have gotten away with one ladder to go into both windows, and there were no trees to to jump into to get from one house to the other. It was all just right there. Well, I mean, home construction is is a little different in a lot of places than in the in the U.S. with this with massive lots and that kind of right. stuff. Yeah. Um, so it probably makes sense for them to yeah, share just a wall build a door in the build a door in their wall, right, <laughs> right next. Or like in the magician's <laughs> nephew, where, where the uh, the attics all connect. Everybody yeah, like, oh, yeah. Wow. Um, it is very common in the UK. M- most houses are terraced, so they're joined together. Mm-hmm. Uh, my house is joined onto one other house, and okay. my but my gar- gar- garage, as you would say, <laughs> translating for you. <laughs> My garage joins <laughs> next door's garage, so all the houses are joined together in some way. Okay. Does it go garage, garage, house, house, garage, garage, or does it like a set of two oh, and then another um, set of two? It's it's a bit more complicated than that. Oh. <laughs> we should save that for, save that for the architecture podcast. I, I, I will. I will refer people. the The incomparable network has a podcast called Pants in the Boot that's all about oh, different yeah. uses of English between. America, Canada, the UK, and the um, 
you know, crown colonies. Um, and they have a, a whole episode all about different kinds of housing, tenement housing, apartments, mm. flats, um, and in all around the world. Um, I think they even bring in somebody from Europe um, to, to talk about uh, that. I mean, from other parts, from continental Europe, not that the UK isn't Europe. So yeah, I, I'll put that uh, link in the show notes to, to that episode about housing. They may have two episodes on that. Um, you know, they, they of course have episodes on differences between cookies and biscuits um, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, lots of, lots of different stuff. They even have a whole episode just about swears. Um, so, so some words that are just absolutely beyond the pale in, in the United States are very common in the, in the UK. Yeah. You can't find biscuits over there. It's not fair. Oh, oh, flaky Southern biscuits. Yeah, the, yeah. the first time I went to a KFC in London, there, there was a KFC right across from our flat in London mm-hmm. when we lived there. Yeah, you get chips, right? And uh, yeah, <laughs> I was I went there. I'm like, why is there no biscuits? I really want a biscuit. <laughs> we noticed that when we drove through Canada, it's the same way. Yeah, so. <laughs> you just ask for a scone, a scone, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which is a drier biscuit. <laughs> yeah. Most British scones also have sultanas or cherries in them as well, so that, that mm. wouldn't go well with the chicken. Oh, yeah. No, not really. <laughs> the interesting thing, you know, when you talk about the 1972 movie is the, the production values. Very, very low to the point that there's some masks and, and then just some makeup on people to make them. They're supposed <laughs> to be little people um, or, or various freaks of various kinds. You know, the skeleton person mm. is just somebody with grease pen <laughs> markings. He's wearing so, a skeleton costume. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, it, I mean, it's, it's more or less like what you might see in a school play. Of the book, yeah, I think that's a good good way of putting it. So, if you're a complete completionist, <laughs> you, you can look for it. But um, maybe I'll put a reference to it, but no link to it in the Wikipedia, <laughs> since it's not really supposed to be out there. Well, it does have an IMDb entry. Mm, I guess that's true. And uh, as I was watching the movie, and I was I was reading the IMDb entry to to learn more about it, I realized you know there's no production company, there's no screenwriter, there's. <laughs> Yeah. Fascinating thing to me was that they changed the names too. Oh, did they? Oh, I, did, I didn't remember that. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I, uh, did, I didn't rewatch it for this podcast because I, I didn't know that one would come up. Yeah, <laughs> the interesting thing that I thought was it shouldn't. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Phil. No, I was going to say it shouldn't really be on IMDb because it's, as I say, it's a, it's a, it's like a student film. I mean, it was made by yeah, a teacher, but it's essentially it's a student film, and student films shouldn't be on IMDb. Yeah. It should only be commercially released things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. the uh, The names are Jim Stone and Ben Hopewell <laughs> instead of Jim Nightshade and uh, Will oh. Halliday. Um, the 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 one that I thought was really interesting was instead of uh, Mister Dark, it's Mister Black, and instead of Mister Cougar, it's Mister Poomer, which reminds me of Puma. I'm like, <laughs> right. hey, which is a different name for <laughs> Cougar. Yep. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so so that was that was fascinating. So maybe we should move on to the 1983 movie. Yes, much more enjoyable discussion. <laughs> yes, please. Um, yeah. So where where do we begin on the 1983 movie? You said you had perhaps seen this before, Colin. Yeah, I remember the scene uh, where Jason Robards is in the library and the dust switch is t- is you know making his heart slow down until he's going to die. Okay. Interesting. Or thinking he's going to die. So maybe we should go back to talking about the kind of the process of adaptation. We, we talked about the process of adaptation, but the process of filming and releasing this was also kind of interesting. So Phil, do you want to take that? Yeah. Again, this has got a very long story to it, but I'll, I'll try and be brief. I'm, but I'm going to take you back to 1973, which is when Bradbury wrote the first screenplay 
for this. Apart from the one in the 50s that became yeah. the book, in yeah. 73 he wrote a totally new screenplay. But he was, um, he was working with Sam Peckinpah, who mm. was going to be the director of the film. And Peckinpah is, is known for films that are very different to this. But Peckinpah mm. said a thing which Bradbury loved to repeat, which is that when you adapt something, what you should do is tear the pages out of the book and stuff them into the camera. And hmm. Bradbury loved this so much <laughs> that he, he, he believed this. And when, so when he wrote the screenplay for Something Wicked, the first screenplay in the 70s, he literally adapted the book. He went through the book page by page and turned more or less every page into screenplay format. So it's a very straightforward adaptation. This is the Collins, it's Collins ideal version. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the script, if you were to film that script, the film would be about five or six hours long. Mm. The Colin um, cut. <laughs> which is ridiculous. Yeah, television miniatures. <laughs> so obviously, yeah. <laughs> so that would never be filmed. But um, it's, it's quite a decent script because the book is quite good, you know, but it's not practical. So he then writes another shorter version of it, I think around the mid-70s, something like that. And the film was going to be made in the mid-70s with Jack Clayton directing, who did eventually direct the film. Um, but various things happened and the film fell apart. And then in about 1981, they restarted production. And uh, that's when... Um, Bradbury discovered that Clayton had had the screenplay rewritten by somebody else without telling him. So Bradbury turns up for the first script meeting with Clayton and they look at the script and Bradbury says, what's this? <laughs> oh <my> gosh. <laughs> and Clayton says, oh, yes, I had to do some work on the screenplay, Ray. I hope you don't mind. And Ray was li livid, basically. Um, so yeah. they, were, they were really good friends before the film was made, but that <laughs> absolutely fractured their friendship. Mm. And they were barely on speaking terms through the making of the film. So it was a very uncomfortable thing. And yet in the, all the publicity material of the time, there's lots of interviews with them around the time that the film was made. And they're both presenting themselves as, oh, we get on really well and all of this. But um, behind the scenes, they were mm. really very unhappy with each other. <laughs> at that point wow. the film was shot and was previewed um and the preview audience didn't appreciate the film it was probably not the right audience frankly but uh, you know they give people cards to fill in and they they rate various parts of the film and it was considered to be a disastrous preview mm. so the disney studio decides not to release the film at that point it's going to mm. need more work on it so they basically sideline Clayton as the director. Bradbury has a bit more influence over what happens to the film at this point, um, but he's not really in charge. He, he thinks he is. He thinks he's having a big influence, but he doesn't have as big an influence as he actually thinks he does. But the Disney machine takes over and they start reworking bits of the film. So there are some new scenes added to the film. You're, you may have noticed when you watch the film that the boys suddenly get older in one scene when the spiders come out and mm. then they get younger again in the scene afterwards. And that's because that scene was shot like two years after the oh, first wow. version. Of wow. the, yeah. the rest of there the was film. a different version of the scene, um, right? Um, it was a totally different scene that yeah. didn't work that they took out okay. and then they filmed the spider scene as a replacement. Um, hmm. 
and there are, there are various other changes that were made as well and lo- lots of visual effects were added in some of which really helped the film i think the the library scene where mr dark is tearing the pages mm. out of the book and they catch fire as he rips them out it's a beautiful yeah piece of film i like i like the sound there um, as well to go with the effect the visual yeah effect. yeah very powerful scene and and the visual effect is subtle yes you know it, it, but originally there was no visual effect there so that's just an example of the the disney machine saying what can we do to just boost every scene in this film as much as we can mm-hmm. so and the the other thing they did in this sort of remaking of the film is they shot a new beginning and a new ending and oh. kind of bookended it with a bit of bradbury style narration so i think the the film begins with sort of um, autumnal scenes and I think it ends yeah. with um, the boys and the father running across the countryside and you sort, sort of see the autumn leaves right. on, on all the trees um, that was added in in the remake mm-hmm. uh, of the film they filmed that in Vermont funnily enough rather than the Midwest <laughs> um, so New England in the fall I yeah. suppose reliably uh, photogenic in the fall yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So, so that in <laughs> that was probably quite a long telling of what happened, but <laughs> that's as brief as I can make it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I read in Wikipedia there was also a change in the uh, score. Oh yes, yes, that, I, I suppose that is a big change. The original score was by George Delarue, who uh, is a well-known film composer, and it's it's a pretty good score if you listen to it in isolation because you can get it on CD. Yeah, if you listen to it in isolation, it's a a very fine score Mm -hmm. but it wasn't quite hollywood enough Mm. so they got Mm. uh, james horner to do the score yeah and i think his score works really quite well Um, yeah but it 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 resembles his other scores it does which is the downside that is a thing that happens (laughs) with his scores Mm. i watched it last night with my wife kathy and her head kept on jerking up during certain parts of the the movie and i'm like what's going on because i thought she was scared or something (laughs) she goes that sounds like star wars Mm -hmm. and so we we do ryan and like yeah that's that's the empire march like yeah that's that scene (laughs) from there and Mm -hmm. i wish i knew more about the history of Disney's film division because it was there were some rough times um, between between kind of the classic age with you know Cinderella and Snow White and those mm-hmm. things and between between that and the the new animated era um, probably you know Lion King somewhere around there uh, Beauty and the Beast Little um, Mermaid Little Mermaid yeah there there were some <laughs> rough times where you know they did things like Benji the Hunted you know they they did more live action films. Um, but they they had struggled for quite a while. I think they even shuttered the film division for a while. I can't I can't remember exactly what happened, but I don't know where this falls in there. But I know that they were at the time trying to you know prove that essentially we can do more than animation, um, and it did not always work out. Especially because mm. with all the reshoots and everything, I think the the budget on this ballooned up to twenty million dollars or something like that, which was quite a bit for the time. Yeah, and it was not a commercial success. Right. They had shortly before this one, they'd made Watcher in the Woods. Which is a similar similar kind of thing, um, mm. you know, supernatural, slightly scary thing. So it's a little bit away from the the mainstream of what Disney had been doing in their live action films up to that point. Yeah. So there there was something going on in Disney around the early eighties where they were trying to branch out mm-hmm. in this way, and I suspect that the the commercial failure of something Wicked um, put a stop to that yeah. and drove them back to their 
sort of more traditional methods. Yeah, the black collar didn't didn't help either. <laughs> that was two years later. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I still want to see a live action adaptation of the Predane Chronicles because I just love them so much. <laughs> so the movie has a six point seven on IMDb, which which is not not great, but you know above That's not bad. Above, yeah, around seven is is decently uh, reviewed. Roger Ebert liked the film. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to talk about, uh, you know, what what do we think of the film? Colin, do you want to go first? Uh, so the fact that, that Bradbury made the first cut of the adaptation and then it was rewritten and what was filmed was the rewrite. Mm-hmm. And then they had to, like, do a whole bunch of reshoots makes me want to see the cut. The Bradbury cut. The original. Is, yeah, <laughs> I don't think the original Bradbury cut exists because they never actually Probably filmed not. the well, original yeah. screenplay. Well, the right, right. The, the original cut of the remake kind of the the reformed one with the new screenplay that exists does it not phil it does yeah it's not um it's not publicly available but it yes it certainly exists because bradbury had a copy on a vhs tape which i i discovered i mean it was it was was never truly lost but i don't think anyone knew that he had it but uh, when i was sorting through Bradbury's filing cabinets in the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies in Indiana a few years ago. There were loads of VHS tapes. Oh, wow. And I, was, I went through them all just to see what he had on his tapes. Most of them were just junk. Yeah. But one of them said, something wicked, first version, exclamation mark. <laughs> so I thought, <laughs> see, oh my that God, would be cool it's to the see. holy grail. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But, so is so yeah, some, so is I've, I've... Go ahead. So I've, I've seen it. Um, and... It is different to the version that we know. In some ways, it's not as good as the version that we know. Mm. But in a couple of ways, it is better. I mean, there's a mm. there's a scene. I can't remember quite where this fits in in the overall uh, story. But there's a scene in the in the unreleased version of the film where the boys are following the train tracks after they've seen the train, they're running along the train tracks mm-hmm. and they've seen the train go off into the distance. And suddenly the tracks come to an end and they just sort of look around themselves. And where did the train oh. go? Because the yeah. tracks just stop here. And that's, that's a really nice little scene. And for some reason that's taken out of the film, mm. probably yeah. because they thought it slowed, slowed the film down or something, but that's a, that really is a nice kind of supernatural mystery right. because yeah. it's really your first clue that there's something weird about this train. Mm. And so that was taken out of the film. And I think you see them running along the tracks, but you don't see the tracks coming to an right, end in, right. in the released yeah. version. Mm. Uh, so there are a couple of things like that in it. And um, <laughs> some people who have either seen that, the film or read the screenplay um, have said that it was actually more of a Jack Clayton film than the released version is. Jack Clayton, probably most famously in 1961, did a film called The Innocents, which is based on Turn of the Screw. And it's a very atmospheric film. And it's probably the close of, of all the films that Clayton did, it's probably the closest one to Something Wicked. And I think there's a similar sense of atmosphere in the for the unreleased version of Something Wicked. But that's m- mostly gone in the released version. But uh, I, I do think, on the whole, the released version is a, a slight improvement over the unreleased version. I don't think I've seen anything from Jack Layton. No, I don't think he's that well-known. I mean, probably his most famous film during his career was um, The Great Gatsby in 74. Yeah. Well, and he did a version of Moby Dick as well, at least as a producer. 
Uh, yeah, he was he was on that as I think an associate producer or something, and yeah. that's where he first met Bradbury. I was going to say uh, this is where their friendship. He's one of the credited writers for that. Yeah, that's not official. Then. Yeah, yeah. So James, uh, your thoughts on the movie? Not sure. <laughs> let, let me say a little bit more because I'm checking my notes here. Okay. It won two Saturn Awards and had five additional nominations. Wow. So I, I think the genre community probably appreciated the movie quite a bit. I don't remember what it was up against that year. Yeah. And uh, it won uh, Best Score for James Horner and Best yeah, Supporting cool. Actor for Jonathan Price. Hmm. And when we were watching the movie, Kathy and I would, would turn to each other and go, where do we know this guy from? Where do we know this guy, this guy from? Because I recognized his <laughs> voice, but not his face. Mm-hmm. Well, that's because oh, when really? I saw him act the first time, or maybe the second time, uh, he was clean shaven and quite a bit older. He's Elizabeth Swan's father, the governor. Yep. In, yeah. Yeah. That's hard. That's why I recognize him. Yeah. Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, right, 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 right. He's yeah. also in Game of Thrones, too. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. he was, um, oh, Tomorrow Never Dies. Right. Right. The media was, man. I think, yeah, he was the, he was the Bill Gates. Um, <laughs> clearly Bill Gates, where he's talking about releasing something with bugs included. Um, yeah. No, I really enjoyed Jonathan Price's... The scene in the library was fantastic. I, I thought he was absolutely the highlight of the movie. And in fact, I thought... Um, yeah. So I, I enjoyed the movie quite a bit, and I hadn't finished reading the book yet. And so, so then I was sort of... you know I, I didn't have a mental checklist of anything I was looking for, and so I was surprised to see some of the stuff then when I watched the 1972. I thought, well, I, got, I guess that's probably from the book, mm-hmm. um, which was, was correct. I think Jason Jason Robards is is very good as the father, and the the 1983 movie fronts him more as the protagonist than it does Will or Jim. Um, and I don't I don't know if that was deliberate or or what. Hmm. At least at least that's the way I saw it. I, I saw him as the main character. It could be just me. Well, in the book, I think he definitely has more of a main character role. Yeah. It, it's almost like there are um, three characters in the book. Where the first character, and this is going to sound odd, is Will and Jim in that duality role between them. Light mm-hmm. versus dark, good versus bad, like, innocence versus As desire. one, they're a character, right? Yeah. The yin-yang that the film mentions. Yeah, they're a dyad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's um, Mr. Halloway, and he is there as, he, he's, the, he's the force of good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? He eventually figures out how to defeat the carnival and defeats the Dust Witch and the carnival. Mm-hmm. And then the third character is Mr. Dark in the carnival. Yeah. You know, he's the, the, he's the antagonist that they're all up against. Yeah. Right. On, on Wikipedia, it says that there were uh, other people proto- proposed to play Mr. Dark, including Peter O'Toole and oh, really? Christopher Lee. <laughs> what? Christopher Lee would have yeah. rocked that role. Yeah, but I mean, they, they wanted to go with someone less well-known. Um, probably made it cheaper. Um, but I, th- I think Jonathan Price is terrific. Uh, oh yeah. In, in it. And you know, the, like mm. the, his whole look really, really works for me. And he's very menacing. Um, when he, his interactions with the, with the father, right. The, uh, outside the, uh, the cigar store, um, then in the library as well. Um, mm-hmm. very, very, very creepy. The little kid who played the de-aged Mr. Cougar was very creepy too. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought he was excellent. So let me get this straight. You want me to stand here and stare and not say anything and just look like I'm like, huh? Mm-hmm. And look creepy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he did that really well. As, as I understand it, there was an earlier scene that was replaced by the spider scene, which used 200 real tarantulas. Your favorite. Uh, yeah, my favorite. Absolutely. <laughs> I, would, I would. Yeah. Nope. Nope, 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 nope. Um, where it was, it was sort of like a, I think there was a computer generated graphics thing of Mr. Dark's hand reaching for them and then sort of looking spiderish or something. Um, Phil, do you know about that yeah. original scene? 
Yeah, yeah. I think I think it was more of a mechanical um, effect. It was, okay. you know, a, a, a real practical effect that was filmed on on set, and it just didn't look menacing at all. So that's okay. why they took it out. Okay. But I think also you you you, I think you lose the sense of the dust witch passing by. Yes. Which in the novel is quite a distinct scene with the and balloon in the screenplay. Yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sort of yeah. flying by and and almost leaving a trail like a slug trail is yeah, how I right. picture it across yeah. the, the roofs of the houses, and uh, that's in the screenplay. And I think they attempted oh. to film that, but again, that was abandoned. So you don't really get a sense of that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the, the Dust Witch is one of the weirdest characters in the film because you're not quite sure who she is, why she's there. Yeah. Whereas in the novel, she has this sort of grand entrance and is is much more of a, a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's she's almost. I mean, is she in the block of ice as the most beautiful? I mean, it's Pam Greer and she is beautiful. Oh um, yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, and she's just sort of ethereal. Um, you know, doesn't doesn't have nearly as much to do um, with all the dragonfly whatever it was. Um. That's the spell she oh, casts yeah, on the, the boys spell. to yeah, yeah. have them not walk and talk. That's yeah. not in the movie. No, right. no. no but, but I think between being in a block of ice and ha- being gold-plated mm-hmm. and then having her, you know, a- angry witch face mask that she mm-hmm. has at one point right. and then just being <laughs> Pam Greer, it's very hard to tell. That's all the same character until mm-hmm. the very end where you start to like stitch it all together in your head. Yeah. In this one, I feel like there, there's an attempt in the screenplay to give an arc to the father. Right, because he he has this regret yeah. of not saving his son from drowning. Right, which I feel like taking your son to swim in a river when you can't swim is very irresponsible. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah, but remember, in the 1930s and up till the 60s and the 70s, the way you taught kids to swim was by tossing them into a river. <laughs> Sing <Yeah>. or swim, <laughs> I suppose. Why um, but and and his father hadn't done that for him, evidently. Um, and he had regrets, and so he was going to fix that problem and try and do it the right way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> not that it was not that it was the right way, but right. yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, there's some interesting parallels between the way the mirror maze is described in the book, where where Mrs. Foley says, "I I I might have drowned," right. Um, and where they, they pull her out of that, they rescue her from drowning. And then there's the, um, his regret of not saving his son from drowning. And I think that's a, an interesting thematic parallel kind of there. And so then when he goes to the mirror maze, which is one of my favorite scenes, it's, it's very well uh, set up when he walks up to the mirror maze and is sort of invited in. And this is his, his moment. Um, and, and there's a sweet touching moment where, where he, he's kind of stuck in the maze. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, Will is trying to tell him, I don't care about the past, essentially. You know, I love you, Dad. And that, and that the power of love breaks the mirrors. <laughs> well, initially, though, he, when confronted with that scene of watching his son drown, because the, the carnival wants to feed on his regret and right. self-loathing, he punches through the mirror mm-hmm. to, to pull Will out. Right. Out of the maze, out of the river. Mm-hmm. Um, that replaces the scene where he defeats the dust witch through laughter. Right. Right. And mm. if there's so, you know, I enjoyed the film, but if there's a real flaw with it is I'm not totally sure that the ending makes sense uh, or, or the bit with the, the lightning rod salesman where they've captured him and they, and they want to know when the lightning is going to hit the clock tower. Um, <laughs> that part didn't really <laughs> 1955. Yeah. Uh, uh, because lightning is dangerous to them. I think, well, maybe you don't want to set up carnivals in the Midwest. then. <laughs> <laughs> go go to Alaska. I mean, very rare lightning there. Um, uh, but uh, but you know then instead of uh, Mr. Holloway d- destroying the witch using laughter, uh, you know he's 
that she's defeated by the lightning guy, lightning, the lightning rod lightning. guy. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's different, right? It's not quite as grand a, a, a reveal. And, and the, the understanding that laughter is what defeats them is sort of out of nowhere at the end. Yeah, yeah. Because we haven't led up to that. You know, I, I, wonder, I wonder how much Disney's influence comes into this, because I don't think that Mr. Bradbury set out to write a children's book. But this is definitely a movie that is, you know, spooky family friendly. Sure. It could have been way darker. Mm-hmm. It might have been more successful being way darker than it did trying to straddle the two, mm-hmm. kind of like we talked about in Black Cauldron. Yeah. So ripe for a remake. <laughs> I would. Yeah. <laughs> a dark remake. That'd be fun. <laughs> well, there's there's been one announced, but it has never come to fruition. So, oh, two? At least two that I can find reference to. Oh. Although I'm guessing Phil knows far more about that than I do. Yeah. No, not really. Um, <laughs> every now and again, you'll see an announcement. Uh, I haven't seen anything new for about four or five years now, so uh, mm. it's probably not happening. Yeah. But you know, these things are in constant flux, const- constantly being churned over and over again in Hollywood. Right. And uh, so I, I never believe it when somebody says that something's being adapted until it's actually released. Because <laughs> most film scripts just never get filmed, basically. Well, and as as we've recently learned with the Batwoman movie, sometimes they get fully made and not released, which seems a horrible waste. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, with streaming services, it's not like you have to build a great big marketing campaign any longer. You can just toss it out there and make some web ads on your websites, which are cheap. Yep. Yeah. Maybe they're just uh, writing it off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I came across an interesting adaptational quote from Rick Riordan. So I've been following his blog and his Twitter feed to you know know what's going on with the adaptation, and mm-hmm. there was the controversy with the casting and all this other nonsense. Mm-hmm. And he said he now understands why many adaptations are not very canonical, and that is because of the, the massively dynamic nature of these shoots, where things can literally change from day to day. Sure. And so the idea of not changing the original source material is probably you know uh, a revolutionary idea. Mm-hmm. Having said that, what what strikes me as remarkable about Something Wicked, the 1983 film, is the number of scenes that are in there that actually derive from Bradbury's original 1950s script. Hmm. So the the scene where the two boys are down in the in the drains under the grate and above their heads is Mr. Dark and uh, Mr. Holloway having hmm. a conversation. That scene almost I, I don't know if the dialogue is word for word but in in terms of the dynamic of that scene that is in bradbury's original script oh. the library scene is in the original script um and there's various other scenes as well throughout the movie um so bradbury is really a much better short story writer than he is a novelist mm. and uh I think what you've got within the book and within the novel, you've got these scenes which are like short stories. Mm. And some of them are mm. really good and really polished. And those are the ones that have survived every attempt to adapt this material. So in the film, what changes is mostly stuff around, well, how can, where is our protagonist? Who is our protagonist? Who, who's going to make this a commercially viable film? Yeah. Uh, we've got to give the father something to do. He can't just be a father <laughs> figure. You know, so there's all that messing with it in terms of what would make a good conventional movie. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the scenes that are in there, 
it's basically which are the good ones where where are the what are the highlights of the novel that we can put in the film and they they survive in there so i think there are some some really good sections of the film and i i think overall probably about the first hour of the film is absolutely fine very little wrong with it mm -hmm. and it's really as it begins to wind down the last how well i don't know how long it runs over the hour is it another half an hour another 40 minutes whatever yeah, it kind of gets a bit clunky and they clearly don't know how to end the film mm. so you just have things going crazy and flying up into the air <laughs> right yeah. yes right. So. The, the, the carnival goes back to ours Right. Yeah, exactly that. <laughs> but I don't think you could use the ending of the book, really. I think that would be so anticlimactic to just say, oh, well, all we have to do is laugh at it. And that, that wouldn't work in a film. But you'd think, you'd think somebody would have figured that out. Yes. You know, Early on. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it's not like it often happens in television where you can tell that somebody had a plan for a certain amount of storytelling. And then was like, oh, I guess we got to wrap this up. Um, oh, yeah. You know, oh, oh, we're doing a second season. Crap. Um, you know, <laughs> or f five seasons of, of Lost. You know, did they have the ending planned out? Who knows? Yeah. Um, in a movie, you'd like to think that you'd you'd have that. I mean, you, you know, you look at the the new Star Wars trilogy, right? Where they did not have an overall story for the three movies to cover, and it shows. Um, I, you know, I don't like narration, and I don't see any point to the narration in this movie. Um, oh. I mean, I mean, it's it's Bradbury language, right? But, yeah. But yeah. to me, you, you remove the narration, it changes nothing <laughs> about the film. See, I, I disagree with you it, completely. Okay. Just and that's what we tend to do, right? Yeah, that's, that's what we're interesting discussion. So <laughs> you're right. Some narration is just not, should not be in there. But when it is uh, Arthur Hill <laughs> from the Andromeda Strain mm -hmm. reading Bradbury's words <laughs> to set the tone. And, and the, not just the tone, he's, he's not telling us anything that we don't, that we need to know. That's my point. <laughs> but it, it's that, it's like a uh, spoken background music. I suppose. You could have just shown these scenes and, and given the idea of autumn happening, but to tell us that we're talking about kids and the kids who are looking forward to Halloween because it's after school starts, but not quite Christmas and all these other things are going on. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, my, my thing is always, why not, why not put those, put some of those words in characters' mouths? It's a, it's a visual medium. You know, I, I don't want to have an opening scroll. I don't want an opening narration. I mean, in rare cases, I'm fine with it. Um, but here, I feel like you, you could have accomplished that in a different way and I would have liked it better, but it, it's fine. I still enjoy the film. Yeah. But it comes out of that remaking of the film. You yes. See. Uh, the, the, the preview, uh, uh, the preview version of the film is a Jack Clayton film which the preview audience doesn't appreciate. Mm. Disney suddenly gets cold feet about the whole thing. Bradbury sees this as his opportunity to get the film turned back more into something that's like his book. So he really lobbies for the film to be more Bradbury-fied, if you like. That's yes. my word, not his. <laughs> um, <laughs> in case you're wondering. Um, and, and so adding those narrations is part of that. And if you notice, the film on screen... I'm pretty sure it's not called Something Wicked This Way Comes. It's called Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes. Mm. So they're trying to sell it to you as this is the book. Right. They're trying to sell it to you in those terms. So they've, they've tried to bookend it with this Bradbury-style language. What's hilarious, because I've, I've read all of the production documents that 
uh, exist in Bradbury's files. And what's hilarious is in the final stages of the remaking of the film, they had somebody write some narration. And it was terrible. And Bradbury wrote a memo saying, if you want some narration, try taking it from the book right. or ask me and I'll, I'll write you some in a Bradbury style. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I guess origin- in the end, they, they must have done that because it does sound quite Bradbury-esque yeah. in the final version. And I think if you look at the, the Roger Ebert review, I think is one of those that says that the film has the Bradbury feel to it. Mm. So even though it's it's not a great movie, you get the same feeling from watching the film as you do from reading the book. Mm. And, and that's considered to be rare in adaptations. But partly that is because of that narration, which is there almost from the beginning mm. and sets, you, sets the scene and it makes you feel that you're experiencing the book, even though you're not, because it actually turns out to be a very different story in the well, end. I'll, I'll take the new adaptation over, over the previously much worse narration. Yeah. So you're saying you want a Sandlot-style narration versus a from, voiceover. From a character? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I almost always prefer one from a character viewpoint more than an omniscient narrator. Um, not in every case. See, I could see that working, and I, I might like it. Yeah. I mean, you know, you could have, you could have done it the really dreadful way where it, it, you know, it starts in on Arthur Hill as... Older will mm-hmm. right, and then 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 oh, I remember when I was a boy of thirteen, you know, and, and yeah, it's dreadful. I, I I'm not a fan of that. What did Bradbury think of the finished film? At the time, he said he loved it. Uh, as time went on, and particularly after Jack Clayton had died, uh, Bradbury began to be very critical of it and began to talk about the the fact that it had been um, reshot, and he claimed that. Bradbury claimed that he had directed the, the, the reshooting of the film, which is not true at all. It's a, a total exaggeration. Okay. But it 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 um it kind of um kind of emphasizes the fact that he felt that he was having much more control over it in that remake phase than in the original shooting, where mm-hmm. you know the the script had been rewritten without his knowledge. Um, he felt that he was getting a bit more control over it. And and his final statement on it really was something to the effect of, it's not a great movie, but a nice one. Mm. Okay. And I think that's a fair summing up. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'll go with him on that one. <laughs> Any other thoughts? Or should we shut it down? Yeah, let, let's rank him and... All right, why don't you go ahead and go first? <laughs> okay, uh, I'm going to go uh, book movie project. We we don't have to rank the 1972. <laughs> okay, J- James didn't watch it, so right. Yeah. So dis- despite the scenes, the, the the two scenes that I didn't like, um, the the book is just it's Bradbury and it's so good. Mm-hmm. And the movie, like Phil just explained, is not bad, but I don't think it matches that standard of you know creativity and expressiveness and doesn't right. have the same feeling of nostalgia for me that the the book evokes. Okay. What about you, James? Yeah, same. I think book movie. Yeah. Okay. Even though I did enjoy. Uh, Jonathan, Jonathan Price, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. How about you, Phil? Oh, book, movie. Okay, in that order, definitely. Okay. Uh, I totally agree with everything everyone said about Jonathan Price. By the way, yeah, I think he saves yeah. the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he not only is he frightening, he's also very nervous in his performance. There's yes. a there's a nervousness whenever he he finds the boys have done something that is not what he wants. It's, yeah. it's kind of a real nervous energy yeah. there. And that's incredible. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, he always seems to be on the brink of like, he's and all of it's going to fall apart. Yeah. The boys are ruining everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Would have gotten away with yeah. it if it hadn't been for those meddling kids. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think I'm going to go ahead and differ. I mean, I watched the movie before I finished the book. And, oh. and so there was something about the kind of the brevity of the movie that I appreciated. Um, so it's, mm. it's close. I liked both. So, um, but, but I'll say a movie book just to, just to be different. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, Phil, you mentioned you have done some other audio uh, about something. Look at this way comes in the Bradbury 100. Yes. The October, 2022 uh, episode uh, of Bradbury 100. I, I just talk about Bradbury's uh, October books because okay. he wrote, the October Country, this one, which is set in October, and uh, the Halloween Tree. Okay. So yeah, I, I talk cool. about those and their origins. All right. Well, that's good timing. We can, yeah. we can refer people right over <laughs> if you want. The, yeah. If you want even even more of, of Phil's analysis, then then head over to Bradbury One Hundred. We'll put a link in there. Yeah. I just listened to my new annual Halloween Tree full cast audiobook recording. So. Oh, nice. Yes. Has uh, the ah. what's the name of that company? The Colonial Theater. Uh, have they done something? Look at this way it comes. They have, okay. yes, they have, and that's it's pretty good as well. Yeah. Uh, they actually use Bradbury's stage play script for it. Okay, so that's ah, quite cool. Hmm. That would be interesting to see anything that had had changed there. Yeah, I'm not sure if you'd see much. You might hear some things, but <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I think with the pandemic, they closed down. Hmm. That's a bummer. Yeah, they made great productions. Yeah. Well, I remember, Phil, you did an interview with uh, with somebody from Colonial Radio Theater for Bradbury on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jerry Jerry Robbins, yeah. he's the the mover and shaker. Yeah, that um, was a great episode. He, yeah, he's 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 moved on to being a screenwriter now. Mm. So um, oh, cool. I I I think it's uh, Colonial Theater is, I mean, it still it still exists in terms of you can still get all their material and he's still promoting their material, but I I don't think there's much prospect of there being any new material from them now because he's moved on to being a screenwriter. All right. Screenwriters. Yeah. Uh, anything further? Final thoughts? No. I've got one final thought, and that is that people often say that Bradbury is impossible to adapt because there have been loads of, mm. loads of things based on Bradbury, and they never quite work for one reason or another. And therefore, people say, oh, it can't be done. There's something about Bradbury which just doesn't survive transferring across. But I think this film proves that it can be done because this film really does feel like Bradbury, mm -hmm. for the most part, for the first hour, certainly. Uh, it just gets a bit muddled in, in the denouement, as we call it. Yeah. Um, but this, this is the proof that it can be done mm -hmm. if you have the right people doing it. Yeah. And I think Clayton was a good director for this. And obviously Bradbury had a hand in the screenplay, even though he didn't write the final draft. Mm -hmm. uh, so it can be done. And this is the proof. Yeah, where the Fahrenheit 451 remake proved that it can also be done <laughs> quite badly. Um, it can be undone. <laughs> I, I did really enjoy that the one scene where, where they're walking through all the books and, and it's dialogue straight out of the, the novel. You know, don't give them more, more than one idea. Give them one. Better yet, none. Um, I, <laughs> I, I really thought that was well done. And I thought if they, if they could have scaled that out more for the rest of the movie and not had yeah. the parakeet or whatever it was. Um, <laughs> that, that was weird, but <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I don't know. I'm thinking off the top of my head, which is never safe. Um, <laughs> so many times we've talked about adap adapting and why screenwriters want to put their own mark on it, mm -hmm. but it seems like 
if you're going to say that people aren't adapting Bradbury, I think it's more like people don't like the changes that the screenwriters and the directors and the film editors make to the Bradbury. And so you'd have to be, you'd have to have a a lot of people that appreciate his work so much that if you make a change, it's still Bradbury-esque, right? Oh, like in the Hitchhiker's Guide movie, where there, there's a, a scene that's not in the, the novel or the radio play, but that was written by Douglas Adams, the, the one where they keep getting slapped in the face every time they have a thought. Um, um, you know, it's very Douglas Adams. And right. so, so it completely works in the movie, at least to me. Um, so. And if somebody else had written it, I, I feel like you could, you could write things in that style. It's just be a matter of how skillfully you were able to do it. Well, I will, I will sign us off. Uh, so uh, until next time, may the road rise up to meet you and may the book always fall open to where you left off. Well, thanks very much, everyone. Yep. That was right. fun. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Phil. Bye-bye. See you.